1: This is an RNZ podcast.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I listen to some great audio stories from all over the world and share the best of what I hear with you. Coming up today, Blackout is a new fiction podcast looking at what could happen if power went down across the entire USA. Then Wild Dunedin tells stories about the wild things, large and small, living around the city.
1: This is what Otago Harbour would have sounded like before whaling. Hundreds of whales would have come into the harbour, and this would have been the soundtrack to a walk around the harbour in those days.
2: And in Against the Rules, the writer of Moneyball, Michael Lewis, looks at the idea of fairness in different walks of life.
3: NBA refs have achieved what police forces can only dream of race blindness. The refs have no choice. The world's now too good at seeing their mistakes.
2: So why are referees getting so much grief? Finally, NB explores what living as a non-binary person feels like.
4: So over here in this cabinet is what I
2: struggled with the most. So these are my boobs in a jar. And if you want to recommend a favourite podcast to feature or just next time you hear something good, then please let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at rnzpodcasthour. Imagine a world without electricity, life where mobile communications and the internet fails and where news is hard to come by. How would we cope and survive? Well, that's the doomsday scenario presented in Blackout, a fiction show that probably isn't going to appeal to people who get jittery every time they misplace their phone charger. The Bohemian Rhapsody star Rami Malek plays a local radio DJ in New England, trying to work out what's going on when power goes down. And dramatic sound design helps get you straight into the action.
5: 12, maintain at 6400. Copy
6: that. Inspector 12, what's your RPM? RPM 64. I have a visual of the White Mountains now. I'm going to start to maneuver in. Copy. RPM 94. Should be some nice fall foliage down there. Inspector 12, you're about four minutes from the border. I have no interest in going to Canada. Just uh. One last sweep here. Inspector
7: 12, what is your altitude?
6: I'm on the three, uh, 340 radio. The terrain is mountainous. Lifting to 13,000. I don't see anything out of the ordinary here.
5: No. Now, wait a second. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to circle back. This, this is not a safe territory. The territory is not safe. Inspector 12 is the fueling. Okay, I'm going to change frequencies here.
6: Roger. I don't have any power on the rest of the panel here. The panel is down. Inspector 12, what is your position? So the panel is down here. What is your position? Yeah, I should be burning pretty steady here, but it says that I'm actually... actually, 12. I don't have... Shit, what's going
8: on here? It's 12,
6: we but, cannot hear something's you. Something's wrong here. Something's very wrong here. It's 12, we cannot Can't hear you. be right. You. Okay, I'm holding steady. We Hold cannot you. hear you. Change to advisory frequency.
7: Bigfoot, do you copy? I have no power. No power. I'm gliding here. There's a mountain
6: up ahead, and I'm gliding here. I can't. I can't throw my air flaps down. I can't. Mayday. Mayday, I'm going down. I'm going down. (laughs)
7: sense, Blackout, in association with Endeavor Audio.
5: My name is Simon Atani. I'm 39 years old and I'm currently, um, well, I, I, I don't know where I am exactly. It's somewhere on the border between New Hampshire and Massachusetts, I think. It's um, 100 three days since the blackout began, and like everyone else, I guess I'm, I'm just looking for signs of life. I'm n- I'm not sure if anyone will ever hear this, but I guess I feel like I should document what has happened here these past few months. That way, if someone does get a hold of this recording, you you'll know the truth, and you can act accordingly. My family and I, we come from a small little town in New Hampshire, northern New Hampshire. It's not far from the Canadian border. You've never heard of this place, I promise you. It's called Berlin, and yeah, that's how you pronounce it. Pretty much everyone in town used to work at the paper mill, but that was shut down years ago. As for me, I I was, no, I I still am actually, an, an aspiring author, emphasis on the aspiring part because my real job was as a radio DJ at 87.6 The Moose. That's the North Country's only independent rock. That was the latest track from the Danish dream pop band Fonhaus off their self-titled debut EP
1: 87.6
6: The Moose
5: I hope you enjoyed this edition of Morning Buzz Berlin here on 87.6 The Moose. I know I did. I am, as always, your humble DJ, Simon Itani. Enjoy the rest of your morning, North Country boys and girls. I'm off to Madeline's General Store for a very well-deserved cup of coffee. Maybe I'll see you around town. Until next time, all right? And look out for each other. Good morning, Simon. Good morning, Madeline.
7: You're trying out the dark roast this week. Let me know how you like it.
5: Are the beans fair trade? Fair who? (laughs) Nothing.
7: $1.30.
5: You know they make cash registers now with computer screens and everything.
7: This one works just fine. Newer technology isn't always better.
5: Socks win last night?
7: (laughs) Who cares? Expos are going all the way this year.
5: The Expos moved to D.C. like 15 years ago. They're the Nationals now.
7: If your son or daughter moved away and changed their name, would you disown them?
5: Depends. Do I still have to pay their cell phone bills?
7: <laughs> Tell call and the twins I said
5: hi. Huh? Will do. See you soon. What the... What was that? Did you hear that? What? Gunshots. Huh? Gunshots. I-I think up near the cell phone tower, up on the hill. (laughs)
7: I know you're a city boy, but how long have you lived up here now?
5: 18 years.
7: And after 18 years in the North Country, you still don't know when it's hunting season? No,
5: no, no, that that definitely did not sound like a hunting rifle. Oh,
7: you're the expert, clearly.
5: I am, I am, Uh and I'm going to go check it out.
7: Oh, you are the dumbest smart guy I know, Simon.
5: I've gone through it in my head so many times since. At first, it it was the details I missed, like like what the gun, uh, no, the guy actually looked like. Uh, He was wearing all black, I remember that, I know that. When I replay that morning, I I can't help but ask myself how the hell didn't I see it, right? It was right there in front of my face. I mean, how often do you see a man trying to shoot down a cell tower? Stop! Stop!
2: Some of episode one of Blackout written by Scott Conroy, directed by Sean Christensen starring Rami Malik and produced by Endeavour Audio and Q Code. <music> the Southern Right Whale used to be a common sight and sound around Dunedin and Otago Harbour. Back in the 19th century, whaling pushed the species to the brink of extinction. But now there are signs local populations could be bouncing back. The Wild Dunedin podcast tells stories about the wild things, large and small, living around the city.
1: I met this guy, Bill. And we got to talking and he had just come back from the sub-Antarctic islands. And he had been there with this research group. And every year they go down because there's this area in the islands where hundreds of southern right whales gather. So during the day, they're doing their thing. They're going back and forth across this bay with the boats. They're taking pictures. They're you know recording audio. They're recording all the whales' behaviour. But at night time, that all shuts down. And one night, Bill went up on deck, so the generators switched off. Everybody's in bed asleep, and he takes out his microphone and records that sound. That is the sound of hundreds of southern white whales breathing and splashing and communicating with each other. And it got Bill thinking, like, this is what Otago Harbour would have sounded like before whaling. Hundreds of whales would have come into the harbour, and this would have been the soundtrack to a walk around the harbour in those days. And later that night, I'm walking home, and my walk home takes me past the harbour. And it's just this beautiful, calm, still night. There's no wind, the water is like glass. And all I can think of is this conversation with Bill, this sound that he described. And I was thinking, will we ever get to that stage again? Will we ever have hundreds of whales back in the Otago Harbour?
5: Wild. It's wild. Wild.
8: It's really wild. Wild.
9: Wild. 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 It's so wild.
6: The Wild Dunedin Podcast.
1: Kia ora and welcome to the first episode of the Wild Dunedin Podcast. Firstly, some introductions. My name is Claire Kincannon. Originally coming from the west coast of Ireland, I now work as a science communicator in the Otago Museum.
8: And I'm Jamie McCauley. I'm a conservation biologist at the University of Otago with a little bit of a dark past in making radio. So, this is kind of a, a combination of my two lives. In today's episode, Claire investigates that question that we asked at the start. Will southern right whales ever return to Otago Harbour? Because they used to be there. They used to be really abundant around mainland New Zealand. They used to be southern right whales all around the country.
1: This is Will.
8: So my name is Will Raymond. I am a lecturer in the marine science department at Otago University. And I'm also a trustee for the New Zealand Whale and Dolphin Trust, which is a charity that supports research on whales and dolphins in New Zealand.
1: Will first started studying New Zealand's southern right whales when he volunteered for a trip down to the Auckland Islands in 2008. So he's been researching them for 10 years or so. I started by asking Will what the story was pre-whaling. How many whales would there have been around mainland New Zealand at that time?
8: So pre-whaling times, start of the 19th century, it's been estimated that there were maybe about 30,000 southern right whales around New Zealand. That's been estimated by some researchers led by Jen Jackson from the British Antarctic Survey, and they've used the current numbers of right whales and some um, characteristics of uh, population parameters and kind of back-calculated using the logs of whaling catches from from the whalers and they've sort of run that series backwards basically to estimate how many whales there might have been uh, before whaling times. And, you know, you can't say for certain, but it's probably around 30,000, maybe as many as 50,000.
1: Would there have been whales around the Otago Harbour at that time?
8: Absolutely. Um, Otago was probably a real hot spot for southern whales in New Zealand. Um, there were a number of um, whaling stations around New Zealand um, but most of them were around southern New Zealand and Southland and Otago. And in fact, the largest one, the most productive one, was at Otago, which is just inside Head. Ahead. Um, that was active from 1831 to 1841. And that was the uh, whaling station that was most productive of all the ones in New Zealand. So that suggests that Otago Harbour and the surroundings used to be really, really amazing habitat for southern Rockwell.
1: And why would they come to Otago Harbour?
8: Well, they come inshore in the wintertime to have their calves. They're looking for calm, sheltered waters to have their calves. and newborns, they have to spend a lot of time suckling um, and you can imagine getting rolled around and crashed around in big waves in the Southern Ocean. Um, it would be a hard time for a calf. So they're looking for nice, sheltered inshore waters and Otago Harbour is absolutely perfect.
1: So do we have any idea of the number of whales that would have been coming to Otago Harbour to have their calves?
8: Um, I don't think we can say that precisely, but we can get a bit of a clue from the, again, from the catch records of the whaling stations. And like I said, Otago was the most productive one in 1835 or 1836. I think it was its most productive year, and they took over 100 whales from the immediate surroundings. They couldn't go very far. They were just rowing. Uh, rowing boats out to, the, to catch the whales so obviously they, you know, they couldn't travel too far and the fact that they took 100 whales out of the area then um, is a really good indication that um, you know there were lots of whales around at that time
1: So essentially, in order to figure out how many whales there were around New Zealand at that time, scientists have to do this really depressing maths where they look up these detailed whaling logbooks and convert catch numbers or barrels of oil back into real whale numbers And even their name is tied to this whaling history.
8: It's a bit of a sick joke why they're called right whales. Um, uh, Southern, because they're the southern species, there are two other species of right whales. There's one in the North Atlantic and one in the North Pacific. Um, But they were called right whales because they're the right whales to hunt. Um, So they were the first whales, really, that were commercially exploited. Um, And they're the right whales to hunt because they're slow moving, um, which means they're easy to catch. And they yield a lot of oil. They come in close to shore, you know, that makes them relatively easy to hunt. And another result of them being very oily is that the carcass floats. So something that's a bit more sleek, like a blue whale, for example, you have to get to the carcass quite quickly before it sinks. Right whales, because they're big and fat and blubbery, after they've been harpooned and they're dead, they just float at the surface. And so it's relatively easy to process the carcass. So, you know, there's just lots of stuff about them which made them really good target for, for the early whalers. And that's what caused their demise, of course.
1: And when he says demise, Will is not exaggerating. This southern right whale population was hit hard by whaling. Hard and fast.
8: Um, The population declined very rapidly. Um, Catches peaked in about the sort of late 1830s, 1840s. And by 1841, they were pretty much commercially extinct in New Zealand. So there just weren't enough whales around um, for shore whaling operations to be productive so you know that's that tells us that at that time there were very few left the whalers turned their attention to other species but they'd still catch right whales opportunistically so if any right whales showed up they'd still take them so the numbers sort of having been reduced to a very low level then continued to dwindle to even smaller numbers until they were protected which was in 1937 so the very minimum of the population would have been just before protection was introduced And it's been estimated that there were probably only about 100 right whales left around New Zealand at that point.
1: 100 whales remained. From a population of 30,000, possibly as high as up to 50,000, decimation by whaling resulted in just a hundred whales surviving. And for a time, people thought that southern right whales in New Zealand were extinct, because they just weren't seen. But they were hiding out. Down in the sub islands, these 100 whales hung on, and they weren't discovered until many years later.
8: We thought that they'd been wiped out completely. And in fact, there was a period between 1928 and 1963 when no right whales were sighted around New Zealand at all. And, you know, we thought they'd been lost. And then the first records actually from the sub-Antarctic came in, I think it was 1957. There was a meteorological station on Campbell Island and they reported some right whales coming there in the winter. Then there was a bit of a gap and then a recreational yachty went down to the Auckland Islands uh, in 1980 reported finding right whales in Port Ross, which is a a sheltered harbour at the northern end of the Auckland Islands. Again, not much happened for a bit um, until the Royal New Zealand Air Force um, flew a survey down there in 1992, and again they reported quite high numbers of right whales uh, in Port Ross, and that's when people started to pay attention really.
1: So it's to this place, Port Ross, that Will and his team of researchers go every year to study the southern right whales that gather there. And it just sounds like the most magical place.
8: It's absolutely amazing. It is, it's not like anything else you can really imagine. I was absolutely blown away the first time I went to Port Ross. Um, you know, it's just incredible. It's whale paradise. It's unbelievable.
2: Whale Come Home from the Wild Dunedin podcast, presented by Dr Claire Kincannon of the Museum and doc conservation biologist Jamie McCauley. That's created as part of the Wild Dunedin Festival of Nature, which starts on Monday. And the show's just started its second season this past week, so six new episodes are just about to come out. I've listened to the first one all about sharks and how the Jaws soundtrack really doesn't do them any favours. And Claire, who presents the show, tells me that future episodes will investigate topics including crazy forest orgies and whether your cat's playing you. (laughs) The Blind Side Moneyball, the big short. The author and journalist Michael Lewis is probably best known for his books that have been turned into films. In these and other titles like Flash Boys and Liars Poker, he shows a knack for writing about sport, business and the business of sport. He can take complex ideas about any sort of market, be it derivatives trading, baseball batting statistics or arbitrage, and turn them into engaging prose. His previous life working as a bond trader in London probably helps. In a new podcast called Against the Rules, Lewis takes the idea of fairness in modern society and looks at how referees in all walks of life, in law, the media and financial markets and in sport, seem to be coming under attack. In the first episode, he visits the NBA's Replay Center in New Jersey, the place where every pro basketball referee's decisions get scrutinised by other referees in real time during each NBA game. It's
3: wall-to-wall screens, 110 of them. What's on them is whatever is captured by all the cameras in 29 NBA arenas across the country. This isn't the broadcast video with commercials and commentary. The screens here don't even have the scores of the games on them or the names of the teams playing, and they're muted. What you hear is referees staring at basketball games. What you see is nothing but angles on professional basketball courts.
0: Nobody's ever walked in here and walked out and said, this place sucks.
3: <laughs> and I'm not gonna say it sucks either. That's Joe Borgia, who designed the center back in 2014 and now runs it. Before he volunteered for caucus duty, he refereed NBA games. His father was an NBA ref before him. With a break in the late 60s, a Borgia has been refing professional basketball games since 1946. If you went back to the, your dad at the beginning of his career and said, this is what it's going to look like, what do you think he'd have said?
0: Uh, if I told him we would have replay, he'd turn over in his grave. Forget about a replay center. <laughs> is that right? Oh, absolutely.
3: You see, the refs used to insist on their authority. At any rate, everyone agreed that there was no better way to ensure the fairness of the game than to let the ref play God. The replay center is an admission that the ref is not God, that he makes mistakes.
0: I think the mention of replay, none of us liked it when we first heard it. It's a necessary evil. It's necessary. You have to have it today. Everything's taped now.
3: Everyone pays more attention to the referee's mistakes so the NBA has to as well. Now, when a ref thinks he might have screwed up some call or didn't get a good look at the action,
0: he twirls
3: his fingers in the air. That's the signal to the ref in the replay center, who goes to work, reviewing the tape, looking for the best angle, to figure out what actually happened. That's the thing, is everybody can see it now. Exactly. You can't have them be in a better position to judge the game than the referees. Absolutely. The replay center is what allows refs on a basketball court to change their calls. A lot of those calls are subjective, like whether one player fouled another. The refs on the court still make most of those calls themselves. The exception is when the foul is flagrant.
10: Sure, Duke, we're going to give you two good angles, all right? That's the first one. The other one's going to give you a better
3: look. There's blood on the screens. Kevin Love's front tooth got knocked in. Love plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the question is, did the guy who popped him in the mouth do it intentionally?
0: It's just a basketball play, and Kevin Lug happens to move into where the guy's elbow was going up.
3: The refs needed to decide if the violence was not just excessive, but unsportsmanlike, which sounds archaic, because we sort of lost the concept. So the blood doesn't sway the decision.
0: Okay. No. Um, Listen, there's a lot of contact, so a lot of it's accidental. That was accidental. possible flagger?
3: The players all stand around scratching themselves while the refs put on headsets and talk to the replay center.
0: We're looking for the unnatural. Did he throw his elbow out? So the know, foul did he was leave. The foul was on Kevin Love, correct? I thought he was outside. Yeah, but he was
3: moving. He was moving. He was
0: late. Come on, you got to be quick on these. i <laughs> stuck on the blood coming out of his mouth. Yeah, it's ugly.
3: The whole thing only takes thirty seconds. Thirty seconds in which players, fans, coaches get even more pissed off at the refs for taking so long. The only thing stopping the replay center from checking every decision is that it slows the game down. Here in Secaucus, they're still trying to figure out how they might talk to the refs as they run up and down the court, because if they could do that, they could just fix every call on the fly.
0: The special forces we found out, we actually used a chip over the molar that worked off the vibration of the bone. Believe it or not, we did. We, We got a handful of G League referees molded, And we tested that. To wear a chip over their mower. But it it, it wasn't good enough because they didn't know where the voice was coming from.
3: (laughs) It was just a voice in their heads? (laughs) They didn't know where it was. Was that a coach talking to me? This is actually insane. The time and money now being spent to ensure the fairness of what, after all, is just a basketball game. A jillion miles of fiber optic cable connect this room directly to the NBA arenas around the country all for two calls a game.
0: At two calls a game. $15 million to build this room to get two calls right a game. But you got to do it. You got to do it. Can I just
3: pause here a moment? Just to consider what the NBA has done in the past few years to improve the calls. For example, they brought in serious managers to hire and train the refs. Joe Borgia calls his boss the general because she's actually a general and an Air Force pilot. Her name is Michelle Johnson, and before she supervised NBA refs, she ran the Air Force Academy. It sounds like overkill to use a general to make sure a basketball games are well reft but the NBA thought it needed overkill.
0: Can your mic a bit. Yeah. Or at
3: least Adam Silver, the NBA
0: commissioner, did. If people don't believe that the league office is unbiased and that the officials are unbiased, you're going to have a problem regardless of the accuracy of the calls.
3: Silver took over in 2014 and also hired Joe Borgia to create the Replay Center. Since then, the NBA commissioner has taken a ridiculous amount of grief for trying to improve justice in basketball.
0: There are a group of people who think that without the sort of transparency that we see in this day and age, that it enabled certain officials and maybe with a touch of frontier justice to overall create more of a fair environment. Even if that were true, and I'm not sure it is, those days are over. And I think it's whether it's in sports or other walks of life that you cannot turn the clock back on transparency. So
3: here's what else Silver's done. He's broadened the pool of people from which refs are selected. They used to be mostly white men, mostly from the same background. At one point 15 years ago, four NBA refs came from the same high school. He's hired more black refs and female refs. He's insisted that referees be physically fit so they can get into position to see all the plays. While everyone else in America is getting fatter, the refs are getting buff. They're also now getting new feedback on all their bad calls. Silver decided to publish the mistakes made by every ref in the last two minutes of every game so everyone could see them. He gives the teams and the refs a private document listing every refereeing mistake. All this new data on refs means that we and they know all sorts of strange things about their minds. For instance, we now know that their calls have tended to favor whichever team's losing. Their calls also favor the home team. Some large part of home court advantage is just the refs. The analytics department of the Houston Rockets has even done a study that shows that the home team that gets the best calls is the Utah Jazz. Why Utah? Who knows? But you can be sure that someone will figure that out. There's now basically a small army of geeks analyzing all this new data.
10: Look, I don't really like writing papers about sports. I prefer to write them about the economy.
3: That's Justin Wolfers, a behavioral economist at the University of Michigan and the co-author of a paper about NBA refs.
10: But the thing is, this is a domain where the NBA referees have tremendous incentives not to make the wrong call. Um, Every error they make is tracked. Those errors determine whether they get more games. Those games determine how much they get paid. This is arguably the most analysed workforce in the country.
3: Basketball referees are now picked apart in ways that not long ago would have seemed preposterous, not just for the fairness of their calls, but for their unconscious behaviour. Wolfers took years of data from every NBA game, then he set out to look for evidence of the ref's racial bias.
10: The question here isn't whether people are anti-black or anti-white. But where there's an in-group bias, so um, if a if a predominantly black team is playing and the refereeing crew is predominantly white, are there more fouls called against them than on nights when the same team is playing with a predominantly black refereeing crew? And it turns out the answer is yes.
3: Wolfers wrote his paper back in 2007 before this new age of referee transparency.
10: Well, it was a bit of a lesson for me. You can probably tell by my accent, Michael. I'm an Australian. You know, I thought it was an interesting piece of social science. And it turned out the, the New York Times put it on the front page.
3: And the NBA wasn't happy. The commissioner at the time attacked the study and embarrassed the league by trying and failing to refute its findings.
0: This morning we'll hear from the NBA commissioner, David Stern.
3: Our referees are the most reviewed, most ranked, and most rated. And that's why we take exception to what the Times did here. That's Stern on NPR in 2007. The result of all this coverage? Every single referee was made aware of his unconscious bias. When the dust settled, Justin Wolfers was curious to know if his paper had had any effect. He made another study of referees after the controversy he'd created, and guess what? The most recent
10: study that we did seems to suggest that that form of racial bias has gone away.
3: He has no idea why. Maybe simply making the refs aware of the problem was enough to correct it. But in the end, this became a case study not in ref ineptitude, but ref reform. NBA refs have achieved what police forces can only dream of, race blindness. The refs have no choice. The world's now too good at seeing their mistakes. Look, there's no way any basketball referee is going to be perfect, but there's also no way these refs are anything but more accurate than they've ever been. I mean, even home court advantage means less than it used to. And yet these refs are treated as if they're trying to rig the games.
2: Some of Ref You Suck, the first episode of Michael Lewis's Against the Rules podcast from Pushkin Industries, edited by Julia Barton. And thanks to Julia and to Jacob Smith for their help in sharing that with you. NB is a first-person account of how it feels to be non-binary. To get the definition out of the way first, people use the term non-binary when they don't identify as completely male or completely female. It's part of a growing recognition that somebody's gender identity isn't just set at birth, black or white, pink or blue. It's more fluid than that. And it's you and not society who gets to decide who you are and what you want to be called. Caitlin Benedict's an Australian radio producer living in London who came out to themselves as non-binary last year. But they really want to tell their parents back home in Oz about it too. So in NB, Caitlin and their friend Amru probe some of the questions and feelings and uncertainties about being non-binary. From the language and the gendered pronouns we use to clothing and how you feel about your body. This is NB. Non-binary.
9: Dismantling the gender binary.
6: One big question at a time.
9: I'm Caitlin, and I'm just figuring out my gender identity.
6: I'm Amru, and I've been out for a while.
9: Amru's going to share what they've learned.
6: And hopefully learn some new things too.
9: Okay, let's go.
6: This is part one.
9: Realising. Today we are going on our first road trip to... Brighton, and to the Museum of Transology at the Brighton Museum and Art Gallery. Where are they? Hey, good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Yeah, good. There's Amru. They're a writer, performer, and aquarium enthusiast who describes almost everything as iconic. They're my friend, and my mentor. My friend tour. They hate that. You look beautiful, look Thank at your sparkly eyes. I know,
6: sorry, I did a show last night.
9: <laughs> <laughs> I should probably tell you a bit about who I am, too. By day, I work for Radio 4 at the BBC. I book guests, I record interviews, and I generally do behind-the-scenes things to make sure radio happens. I moved to the UK from Australia in 2012 with my partner Roman, who you'll hear from later in the series. I am 29 and 1 but I like to tell people that I'm almost 30 in hopes it'll somehow mean that they take me more seriously got the most beautiful uh, leftover uh, sparkly eyeshadow. To it's them. the same color as your nails, so that's good.
6: Oh, yeah, I just got these done. They look great.
9: You'll notice I refer to Amru as them rather than he or she. If you've not met anyone who uses gender neutral pronouns before, you'll get used to it. About 5 minutes into the first conversation I ever had with Amru, I knew I wanted to go through this process with them beside me. Coming out, making a podcast, they're kind of the same thing. Anyway, Back to the Road Trip and the Train to Brighton.
6: So we both identify as non-binary.
9: And and... you've really got your shit together, I think. Do (laughs) I? Well...
6: Okay, externally on the surface, (laughs) I think it seems like I have my shit together. The illusion is working, I'm so excited. I mean, I think I... um, But, you know, being non-binary for me is such a constant um, questioning of my gender and my sexuality and my world view that... I feel like in a way you can't really have your shit together as someone non-binary because you're constantly questioning and interrogating yourself. And I still have a lot of questions. You seem to have your shit together to me.
9: Oh my God, I have so many questions. I have nothing together. (laughs) (laughs) And it's because of those questions and the very long waiting list for therapy that I'm doing this podcast. This episode is about the very first stage of that, of coming out to yourself. The first time that you realise...
6: I think I've always been non-binary. I just didn't know I had tools in society to express it.
9: I don't know about you. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me because I feel like even when I was a kid, maybe up to like the age of 11 or 12, that gender didn't factor into lots of my thinking as my sexuality kind of didn't either because I um, was attracted to boys and girls and because everyone at the age of 10 is basically just a blob of a human Yeah. Um, it was never really like a super important thing and then all of these little external messages about gender that are so binary start like infiltrating their way into your mind and I don't even think I clocked that I was femming up when I was in my early adolescence Um, and then dismantling all of that stuff over the last couple of years. Like, I think it all started because I got a haircut and I had short hair all of a sudden and I remember having short hair when I was a kid and I was like, oh, oh. And then this whole kind of thought process unravels from there.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I was raised between Dubai and Bahrain and it was just a very gendered society. The fact that they were just you know, men's areas in the mosques and women's areas in the mosque and, you know, men did this and women had these kind of jobs it's really um, embedded in where I was from so for me I was just like, okay, because I have a penis I guess I'm supposed to do these things that all boys do and I've got a twin brother who's straight and cisgender so that means, you know, he has no he, he feels comfortable as a man and um, so oh,
9: you're like a control group for each other <laughs> I know I
6: know we are I mean if anyone wants to pay us to experiment on us we will take your money um, <laughs> and give you no know, information
9: being the person who is going on this journey and talking into a microphone is like uh, a kind of non-binary experience in itself for me <laughs> because I'm so used to being the one operating the equipment not the one talking into it and I uh, the reason that I'm doing that, despite the fact that it's really uncomfortable for me in so many ways, is because I, I know that I need to like go through this process and essentially come up with some, not some lifelong answers, but some answers for now about what kind of person I am and be able to articulate those things to the people in my life.
6: Have you come out to your family as non-binary, Caitlin?
9: I don't know. <laughs>
6: uh,
9: this is part of the podcast and I am going to play the first few episodes to my oh, parents wow. and then I'm going to have a conversation with uh, with my dad and kind of take it from there. I sort of... Um, <laughs> Did a really classic. My family, we really, really deeply love each other and uh, we know each other very well. Um, It's a pretty comfortable, fairly progressive environment in my household, but we don't tend to, like, talk about things in great detail. We just Uh, assume everyone knows everything. Right. Um, And, like, my dad likes my Instagram posts, so, like, he probably knows, but I haven't had the conversation yet. And I think... That is part of going home this Christmas for me is, is really going to be about making sure that I have those conversations and I'm really honest because when you live, you know, 10,000 kilometres away from your parents, it's easy to, it's easy for them not to know you very well, even though you love each other really deeply. But that stage, coming out to my family, is for later on. This episode is about coming out to myself, which is why we've come to the Museum of Transology because it's somewhere that's meant a lot to me. The first time I went there, I just cried and cried. So, we head inside, where we meet the curator, EJ Scott. OK, here we are. I mean, this was so meaningful to me the first time. I just can't wait for you to see it. Oh, wow.
6: EJ, what's your pronoun? Yeah, he. 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 or they or my name,
4: I don't care.
9: OK. EJ is five foot two and dressed like a trendy lumberjack. He could be 30 or 50. He bounces on the balls of his feet and gives us the warmest welcome to the museum. So we're on the other side of the door of the Museum of Transology and there are, like, 20 kids in there? Yep, they must all
4: be, what, about 12 years old, maybe? Imagine
6: having that at 12 years old, getting to look at this. And they're all
4: very loud and very excited and looking at everything very intently.
6: That's amazing, the idea of having had, having this as a child. And here they them. all
4: come through now.
6: Hello, everyone.
4: Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi.
6: Did you enjoy the exhibition? Yes. Oh, yay. yay. <laughs> that was a yes. They said yes. That was lots and lots of
4: yes.
9: Bye. Bye. God, imagine having that. I, I didn't know- even know... Anything about this until I was like.
6: That would, um, they all seemed so open minded and. Um...
4: Well, I think exhibitions play a really important role in doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, coming to a museum, museums are places where you learn about life, where you learn about the world that you live in. It, it's, it's a space that teaches you you know who you are in the scheme of things it means that these kids that are already thinking about this stuff Mm -hmm. have an opportunity to be true to themselves at a younger age but it also means that people are starting to see themselves in the museum's collection Mm -hmm. in a way that they haven't been included before
9: the kids they're gonna i mean i think every every generation thinks this that the, the kids are doing much better than us but oh they really are
4: yeah look i i think that Ultimately gender will be like getting a haircut. You know, it will be no big thing. You will go along, you'll go, that's the one I want today. Thanks very much. You know, it comes in this size and this shape and no one will even think about it, you know. I, hope so. I think we're just still really, really we're making progress, but actually I think we'll look back in a hundred years time and go, they were really old fashioned.
9: Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh well, I hope so.
4: Do you want to come over here? Yeah. So over here in this cabinet is what I struggled with the most. Oh,
9: wow. So wow.
4: these are my boobs in a jar.
5: So this right? is...
4: Those were your... Yep, so that's me up there, and you can see my scar of my tattoo where it's been cut off there is what's left on my chest there. So... So
9: we've got two uh, mason jars identical to the ones that I put my porridge in, and yep. within <laughs> that <laughs> we've got EJ's breasts. Yep.
6: One of them has three quarters of a tattoo. Exactly. And the other quarter is,
9: it's sti- not. <laughs>
6: is still... It's not. still a, a
9: hide- <laughs> um. And all of these letters, I mean, there's one... Uh, the one that really, really sticks in my head, I realise, was written to you.
1: Uh,
9: dear Mr Scott, this has got an NHS masthead on it. Further to earlier discussions, I understand that you wish to retain your breast tissue following its removal at your procedure today. I have discussed this extensively with our consultant, histopathologist. Essentially, your breasts will be dealt with in the normal way whilst in the operating theatre and will then be sent to histopathology. If the breasts are to be actually left intact for yourself, then the histopathologist will be unable to make any histological examination of them. The breasts will require some two weeks to become fully infiltrated by the fromelin, which... Uh, Is it like formaldehyde? Formaldehyde,
4: yeah.
9: (laughs) Uh, My suggestion, therefore, would be that you collect your breasts from the histopathology department at the Royal Sussex (laughs) County Hospital in Brighton on the same day that you see me for your post-operative visit. This will allow sufficient time for the breast to become infiltrated, as stated earlier. (laughs) I mean, that's a medical letter, and yet it's also like some collaborative art project. (laughs) That That is so cool. That
6: is so cool. Uh,
4: And you can just imagine... And do you know what? I was too busy to to actually go up to collect them so my partner went up and you know there she goes wandering down the street <laughs> with two buckets of boob in each one <laughs> <laughs> trying not to spill the contents what do you do today dear? i just picked up your boobs thanks for that
0: and where did
4: you keep them um in my cupboard for a very very long time next to what so, other things yeah, next exactly. to the
0: porridge
2: <laughs> Some of episode one of NB called Realising, presented by Caitlin Benedict and Amru al and produced by Caitlin Benedict, Arlie Adlington and Georgia Cat for the BBC. And that's about it from the podcast hour for now, as well as NB. This week we've been listening to Blackout, Wild Dunedin and Against the Rules. And please keep those listening recommendations coming in too to pods at rnz.co.nz and I'll feature as many of them as I can on future shows. Over the next few weeks, we'll have some Malcolm Gladwell in revisionist history and his and Rick Rubin's newish music show Broken Record. The BBC's Untold and a recent discovery called Kerning Cultures that's telling some great audio stories from the Middle East. So until next time, from me, Richard Scott, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you.
3: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long.